Finally, the Lord calls us to a time of fellowship in His Word with verses 7 and 8 of this psalm. The works of His hands are truth and justice. His precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and righteousness. God tells us His works result in truth, integrity, and righteousness. Right standing. Right standing with God. How does he bring that about? Well, the very next verse, or the very next statement, all his precepts are, are sure. Brothers and sisters, this is a call for us to go to the Word of God, to stand on the Word of God, that we might be a people who stand before God knowing that you are right before him because of Jesus Christ, our Lord alone. So with that, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 1. In your bulletin is an, is, is an outline. I encourage you to use that. Follow along. Take notes. Read the quotes and the like, and hopefully, by God's grace, leave here um, having fellowship with your Lord around His Word. Esther chapter 1 is, is where we are now in our study. Next week, we'll be in chapter 2, and then the following week, chapter 3. So if you would, if you're not already, read along, study along, and uh, by God's grace, may this be a glorious blessing for us as we fellowship with God around this incredible passage. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of our King, not King Ahasuerus but the King of kings and Lord of lords. I invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect, if you're able, for, um, for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of our king. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to, uh, uh, to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the, and the uh, princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen, uh, violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns, and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of, of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. And the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who, were, who, who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king to, so to speak before all who knew law and justice. 
and were close to him, uh, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memukan. The seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the, the, the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? And in the presence of the king and the princess, Memukan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the, the princes and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. And this day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be uh, written in the laws of the Persians and Medes, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti should come no more into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to uh, another who is more worthy than she." And when the king's edict, which he shall make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. And this word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house, and that the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Let's follow the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, what an incredible chapter, an incredible passage. Lord, give us the grace as we fellowship around this chapter, this passage, that, Lord, we would be enriched in the inner man or woman unto our growth in grace, confidence in you, our strength in Jesus Christ. Lord, bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, as we began looking, last couple of weeks, but last week specifically, I introduced you to the main theme of this entire um, uh, book, and that main theme is providence, the providence of God. Well, what is providence again? We, we need to be aware of that because every week we're coming back to it. Well, the word providence comes from the, from the English root provide, which is Latin. Two words for it, pro, which means before, and vide, which means to see. So literally, provide means to see before, but not in the sense of foresight. It, it's rather in the sense of te, the, um, uh, to see uh, to something, to make sure something gets done. So to provide speaks of, of um, taking care of what is needed beforehand. And that's what the idea of providence is. It's taking care of things. So when, in, in reference to God, it refers to, as we've said, his most holy wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. However, it can be used more generically. The American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language defines providence as one care or preparation in advance, foresight or prudent management economy. As such, it can be used in reference to a person, a family, a state, a government, or a king. And so in this book, the way that this book is structured, this book is all about God's providence. But before God gives us an understanding of his care, he first is going to show us the nature and the true character of all earthly 
providence. And in this case, the providence of King Ahasuerus, who was the most powerful man in the world at this time. When you think of providence in this context, providence is being bedbound in a hospital where you can't get up. Whatever the nurse does in your care is providence. It's her care. It's her, it's her help. Providence is being a young child in a crib and having parents who come and take care of that child. That's a parent's providence when it comes to their kids. Now think of it. If you've got an evil nurse or you've got evil, wicked parents or you've got a man who comes home from, from being beat up in the world and beats up his family it can be pretty frightening to be under a person or a, 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 uh, an institution that has, that has wicked intentions when it comes to their providence. And that was how God's people viewed it with this great king, Xerxes or Ahasuerus. He was the one who dictated their lives. Now, having said that, one other note before we dive into this chapter, and that is, recall, this book is arranged as a chiasm. And a chiasm is a literary tool used in the Bible to highlight a message. And basically what you've got is you've got repetition. They'll have an A and an A prime. Both of those are parallel. A B and a B prime. Both of those are parallel. You can go C, D, E, F. But in this case, you've got an A, B, and I believe it's an A, B, C, focusing on one thing. So you've got it in front of you. Notice chapter 1 and chapter 2 are parallel. Opening end. 2 through 3, 8 through 9, King's second uh, decree, King's first decree. 4 through 5, 6 through 7, the clash, Mordecai's triumph. So there's this clash. Then verse 6, or chapter 6, the very beginning, all points to during the night the king could not sleep. Brothers and sisters, God affected the deliverance, the protection, and the care of his people while they were sleeping. That's how awesome our God is. And brothers, that that may make you think, well, then chapters 1 through 5 are not important, and the end of chapters 6 through 10 are not important. But that's not true. What it means is, as important as those chapters are, everything we read in those chapters must be read with that picture in mind, with that focus in mind. And that is God cares for his people even in their sleep. All of it. So we can't read just one chapter without thinking of the rest of the chapters and the rest of the story and the point of this story. That'll have a lot of um, application as we go on each week and, and as well this morning. With that, brothers and sisters, let's begin by looking at the providence of Hazareras. And we're going to begin by looking at the power that he exerted. Xerxes and Herazeros are the same, okay? The, uh, um, uh, the power he exerted as a king. Notice with me verse 1. And it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, as king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital. By way of footnote, there were four capitals in Persia. This is the summer capital so this is summertime this is the time that kings either do war or plan war summertime okay Um, in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants the army officers of persian media the nobles the princes of his provinces being in his presence 
And he, get this guys, displayed the riches of his glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. The focus of the opening of this chapter was to demonstrate for all of us reading how awesome this king was. This entire banquet that lasted six months was designed to do one thing. Notice the end of verse 4. To display his wealth and the splendor of his great majesty as king. Ahasuerus had big shoes to fill. His father was Darius, and Darius was one of the, not the, but one of the greatest kings of the Persian Empire. That was his dad. His grandfather, through his mom, was Cyrus, the first king of Persia. He was the greatest king that Persia ever known, ever knew. So his two heirs, Cyrus and Darius, Stand behind him, so he has to demonstrate to the entire world, brothers and sisters, genetically, I am greater than them. Positionally, power-wise, wisdom-wise, I have a greater kingdom. So he was all about this in his kingdom. And we see this here. The beginning of this book, this is the third year of his reign. Nothing big's happened. He's, he squelched a, uh, um, a rebellion in Egypt. And currently he's squelching a rebellion in, in Babylon at this point. Third year. So at this point, everybody in his kingdom are thinking, this man is awesome. This kingdom is unstoppable, unthwartable. That's the idea. Yet there's a little bit more here. For if you'll notice that phrase that in um, this passage, verse, what is it, 3? His army officers of Persia and Media, many commentators believe that this was also, in addition to his demonstration of his greatness, a war council. For him to amass the largest naval fleet the ancient world would ever know. We're including Greece and Rome. Largest naval fleet ever known was, was amassed under Xerxes. The largest army the ancient world up to that point had ever known. They had to amass that. Now you do that not by conquest. You do that through through um, um, making alliances and, and getting busy building ships, making alliances with places that have ships. They put together this massive, it would take clearly two, three years. The, the date right now is um, four, uh, 460, uh, I'm sorry, 483. The, the Greek wars would begin in 480. So we have three years away. That's exactly what's going on here by many... By, by, by many people's estimation. This is a war council. And they're, they're, here's talking with the chief, chief generals and leaders. And um, now he's treating them right. He's treating them well. He's demonstrating his greatness. He wants the entire empire to know never before has there ever been a kingdom so great, so amazing, so powerful. Verse 5. And that led to the climax after six months of planning and preparation, now get busy doing it so they can make this attack in 480, was, a, was this glorious banquet, seven-day banquet. And when they, these days were completed, the king gave a banquet. This is the, the climax. Lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Brothers and sisters, this was to demonstrate and to celebrate the, the impending war, but to demonstrate once again the greatness of his being. This is it, guys. 
If you want to, know, if you want to summarize Ahasuerus' greatness, his glory and ability, it's in this week right here. This is the culmination of his entire tenure as king. And what an incredible time this was and what an incredible place. Um, it, it's just extravagant. Um, in that day, brothers and sisters, you would be so amazed living in wealth to come here. I told you that last week when the Greeks um, took over some of the uh, um, uh, places that Xerxes uh, just lived on the battlefield. They were humbled by how, how lavish it was. Well, you can imagine this, verses 6 through 8. There were hangings of fine white and violent linen let, held by cords. You can read all of it, brothers and sisters. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to the point where he says, um, I don't know, we're in verse uh, 8. And the drinking was done according to the law, according to tra- uh, tradition. Not the law of the Greeks and the, or the, the Persian and the uh, Medes, but according to tr- uh, tradition. The, the, they drank according to a, de- a decorum, except one, one area. Yet there was no a compulsion. For so the king gave orders to each official for his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. In the ancient world, up until modern times, if you were at a, at a banquet with the king, you did not lift your fork until he lifted his fork. You did not drink until he drank. Every time he drank, you drank. When he put his, his a goblet down, you put your goblet down. When he ate, you ate. When he put his fork down, you put your fork down. That was the custom, the culture of the ancient world around dictators. All right? Well, in this case, he says, I don't want that. I want you all, I want my entire people to enjoy themselves. Eat when you want to eat. Drink when you want to drink. Have a drunken fast. I don't care. This is, the, this is a, a celebration of my greatness. My incredibleness. Brothers and sisters, you've got to go back in your mind just a little bit here. 722 AD, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, which proclaimed to the ancient world the God of Israel was weak. So the Assyrians were stronger than Yahweh. Now the southern kingdom didn't believe that. They thought they're there because of their sin. Well, then in 605, 597, 586, three different times, the Babylonians made easy prey of the southern kingdom, bringing them into exile. Once again, demonstrating to the world, Yahweh is weak. Ahasuerus, his army, his kingdom was greater than those two kingdoms combined. Combined. There would be few Jews who would not sit there. Yes, verbally they'd say, our God is, is greater. But inside their heart of hearts, they'd be thinking, I don't know if God could, could stand before this man. That's how incredible he, is being, he was portrayed and is being uh, portrayed. Now, on top of it, as decorum goes, Queen Vashti also threw a party. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So these two banquets were going on. Those for the important invited guests and the rest of Vashti and then the rest of the, the city and anybody else there, they could come and see and behold how incredible this man is. The voice of a God and not of a man. You can hear him shouting it. The voice of a God and not of a man. That's what this passage is showing us. Okay? Um, now, bro, I don't know about your view of power. 
your view of power in our day, whether it's the United States, a cabal that, that secretly rules over the, the world, a disease like COVID, cancer, um, the loss of a loved one, a tragedy, a demon, uh, or Satan. I don't know what you would, would, would call that, but I do know that there are things in your life that if you were to think of, of, of being in their presence, cancer uh, setting in, the tragedy of losing a loved one, you would fear, and it would shake you to the, the very center. I know that. Every one of us are vulnerable in that way. Well, at this time, that was Ahasuerus. Your worst nightmare was this man, because all he had to say was this, and it was done. And you had nothing that you could do to stand before it, not even God. That's what the idea would have been for many Jews. You know the culture in this time. They're compromised Jews. They would have been thinking either he's more powerful than God or God just doesn't care. But this is what we must reckon with. All right, brothers and sisters, that that brings us to the power of Xerxes thwarted. Notice 10 through 11. On the seventh day, so this is the climax, this is the greatest part of it. On the seventh day, when the king's heart was, was merry with wine, he's drunk. He's very drunk. He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who were served in his presence of the king, Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. All right, this is the climax. He's demonstrated his armies. He's demonstrated his wealth. He's demonstrated his navy. I mean, all of this would be there. Now, the most cherished possession he had, and it was a possession, was his wife. And she was beautiful. She was a trophy wife. So he sends his seven officials for protection. I mean, this is like, bring out my 20 billion pounds of gold. You guys better protect it. For protection, bring this woman out. But brothers and sisters, in order for her to, be sh- to show her beauty, do you understand what that must mean in that day? In that day, women wore the veil. So if she came with the crown on, she, like Cousin It, if you ever saw the Adams family, right? With the crown on, I mean, you would see nothing but just garments and a crown. So for, to, for her to demonstrate her beauty would have meant a declothing of some sort. And do you know what that would have been? Humiliating. Not only would it have been degrading, you would have been walking into a group of drunken men and women all sneering or gazing or whatever they would do when she walked in. That's the command. Was he drunk? Yes. Was it a a bad choice to do? Yeah. Pretty stupid of him. But brothers and sisters, it's very clear in Scripture, or in this passage, it was a command. And it was in his right to command it. That brings us then to verse 12. And the shocker. The most ironic and telltale moment in Ahasuerus' entire Regency. Verse 12, but the Queen Vashti refused to come, see those words, at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. Stop right there. You know the rest of the story. Forget the rest of the story just for this moment. 
At this point, brothers and sisters, this man is going to command the armies of both naval and army uh, and, his, and his land fleet. They are so numerous that when the battle with Greece began in three years, the Greeks thought they were fighting more than three. I said last week two. I was wrong. Three million men. There were so many. That's what they, they were guessing. Three million men easily. He commands these. If one of his generals defied openly one command, he would have been executed on the spot. In fact, it wouldn't have been, been an easy death. He would have probably been tortured instantly on the spot for all to see you do not disobey the voice of a god. Now, he's not a god, but he's more powerful than many of the gods. So at this point, he's angry. If you're reading this and you don't know what happens next, you're thinking... It is not going to go well with Vashti. She is going to be executed. Now, just by way of knowledge, she's royalty. No one could execute her but him. So at this point, he's going to say, bring her in here right now. She'll be placed down before him, and he'll stand up and pull out a little smicter, and he will do all, the, all of the dirty deeds. That's what you're thinking. Because this is the most powerful man ever. You don't defy him. You fear. You quake in fear before him. The simplest command, you do. Why? Because he's so awesome. So we're thinking at this point, whoa. That brings us to third point, the power of Xerxes revealed. This is his response. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was custom of the king to speak before all who knew law and justice who were close to him all those people the seven princes of persian media who had access to the king's presence sat in the first place in the kingdom this is what he said according to the law what is to be done with queen vashti he's drunk but he's not that drunk he knows we're going to do this according to the law of the medes and the the persians how are we going to handle my queen because she did not obey the command of king ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs what are we going to do? Now, these seven people, it doesn't say it here, they would have counseled. They would have talked amongst themselves. Memacon was the chosen representative. And Memacon comes in in verse 16. In the presence of the king and the princes, Memacon said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. In other words, she just didn't disobey the voice of the king. She rebelled against the kingdom. Do you understand? This, this, they're saying, it's just not what you think, king. This is worse than rebelling against you, as great as you are. She's rebelling against the kingdom. Benedict Arnold. She is betraying every man, every woman, every child, and everything Persia stands for. So you're thinking... Oh my, this woman is going to be just obliterated. It's horrible. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. And this day the ladies of Persian media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. So you're seeing how serious this is. So this is, what's this, what is this awesome king and kingdom going to do with that we fear so much? What are they going to do? That brings us to verses 19 and 20 and the punishment. 
This is what they said. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict, in other words, inviolable, be issued by him, and let it be written by the laws of the Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repelled, repealed. This is how serious it is. That Vashti should be stripped of her skin, inch by inch, till she die. That Vashti should be thrown into a, a furnace of blazing fire, heated up 20 times more, just like Nadab or uh, Shadrach, Meshach. Nope. What is the crime going to be? What, or what's going to be the punishment? We're on our edge of our seats. Drum roll, right? That Vashti should come no more into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give a royal position to another who's more worthy than she. What? That, guys, this is laughable. This is so ridiculous. That's the answer? That's the answer for this woman's rebellion? Is that she couldn't... And just by way of footnote, this does not strip her of being in the presence of the king, only in the presence as his queen. We know what's going to happen after this. After this, he's going to go to battle, and Vashti is going to accompany him in his presence during that battle. When he goes back to Sardis four or five years later, she's going to be there witnessing him in this public spectacle he makes with his niece. And when they go back to Susa, she's going to bring him her, that, um, his niece's mother, his, her mutilated body on a pallet. So she's not barred from his presence. She's barred from his presence in the official capacity as queen. Stripper of her title. In essence, they're playing a word game. If she wouldn't strip her clothes off to let us see how, how beautiful she is, we're going to strip her of her title. That's all the bite that these men are suggesting. Now, at this point, you go, that's laughable. It's a joke. If that's the power of the Persians and the Medes, then, brothers and sisters, what are we frightened about Right? What would you be frightened about if all they can do is that? But the king has not spoken. To this point, you're going, all right, look at the the king. That's pretty light. What's he going to say? Is he going to kill those seven advisors and get better ones? Verse 21. And this word pleased the the king. Why? He's a, he's, brothers and sisters, he's a, a, um, a coward. His job was to stand up and kill his queen. He didn't do it according to the rules. He's a coward. He's weak. He has no, 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 no strength, which is why in the end he, he's executed by his bodyguard, assassinated. This pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucon proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to the script of its every people, according to the language that every man should be the master in his own home and no one speak in the language of his own people. Get this. If... <laughs> We're going to just pass this rule that everyone will let everybody know you can't do what my wife just did. I hope you see it. It's a joke. What a joke. And this isn't just nice writing. That's exactly what happened. But the way this is written, this this entire chapter, it's written for you and I to go, what? I'm frightened of that? Have you ever saw Lion King, the cartoon? I don't know if you remember that point where, you know, Simba is, is there with Timon and Pumbaa, I don't know their names. And the girl lion comes, they're going to eat the, the pig. And then Simba jumps out in front of them, and they're, and they're like, yeah, 
kill him, kill him. That's why we got this, this, this wonderful lion. And he went, oh, you know, they're hugging. No, you know, you're my friend. And they're like, that's what you should be thinking at this point. Everyone's like, what? That's the response? That's what the king wants? Brothers and sisters, what a joke. What a joke. Great quotes in response to it, brothers and sisters. This is satire. Um, Joyce Baldwin, in your notes. For us, to, for us who live in a very different age, it would be easy to miss the subtle irony and humor obvious to the original uh, readers. There are several ironical nuances, but the most obvious is the contrast between King Ahasuerus at the beginning of the, the chapter, think of that, when he is the world's greatest monarch, rich and powerful, aloof yet generous, and the same king by the end of the chapter attempting to maintain his dignity despite the defiance of his wife. The counselors represented by Memukan were clever but hardly wise. The decree promulgated according to their advice made the king look a fool in the eyes of his subjects. Ian Deguid added, in fact, the edict demonstrates itself um, uh, serving merely to publicize throughout the vast empire and in the language of, of every people group. Ahasuerus' lack of authority in his own household if it, um, if it was meant to inspire respect for husbands and respect for Ahasuerus, in actual effect was surely the exact opposite. If he was afraid that the story of his um, impotence would spread through gossip, now his own edict has done its best to ensure that everyone would hear the story. Once again, at the same time as we were, are impressed by Ahasuerus' power, we find it hard to restrain a chuckle as he slams his sledgehammer down on a nut and misses. This whole passage is, 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 is given to show what you and I are frightened of when the lights go out. And that day, it was this man. In our day, what, it, what is it in your day? Is it a cabal? I'm saying that for those of you who have those um, you know, a conspiratorial tendencies. Is it a cabal ruling the, the world? Is it a disease? Is it a virus? Is it a tragedy, a bitter providence? What is it that you fear, brothers and sisters? What is it that you are so frightened about that you would be willing to run rather than trust Christ? What is it that, that, that would bring you to the point where you'd say, I'm going on my own because I can't, I'm not going to trust Jesus here. What is it? Look back in your past. You'll know, you'll know what it is. What is it that shakes you and makes you go, I'm doing it and not trust God? What is it that makes you angry at God? It makes you curl your fist and say, God, why? What is it? This passage is demonstrating, brothers and sisters, whatever it is, it's nothing. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you're going to look back upon this world and you're going to look at those insignificant things and there'll be pieces, a flecks, just a fleck of a piece of dust floating in the air, that's how much weight they'll have in your mind, if, if that. That's the point of this chapter. This chapter was written that we might see first the sham of earthly providence, the sham of earthly power, earthly care, earthly control. All of it is a sham. You and I are, 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 are living and, and, and breathing and enjoying the power of Almighty God. So if that's the case, this is pointing us to look at the big picture, the big picture of God. And that being the case, this chapter has incredible uh, 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 pictures, pointings to the Lord.
And I, there are, I had, I, I've got a list of them, but I'm going to give you only three. How do we apply this? What's the point of this? This, and this brings us to some of the redemptive principles revealed in this chapter, right? Romans 15.4, whatever was written in earlier times, written for our instruction. Brother, this, this chapter is written that it might focus us on God, right? That's the whole point of this chiasm. And, this, and Romans tells us this passage has been written even for us. So what do we learn here? Give a couple thoughts. The three main, or I got quite a few more, but at least the three big ones. In this chapter, we get a glimpse of the true victory celebration which will occur at the end of this world. One through nine, we see a victory celebration that defies imagination. Everyone hearing that would go, boy, I wish I could have been there. Brothers and sisters, do you know that this victory celebration and every other victory celebration in this world, what victory celebrations are you envious of? What lifestyle of the rich and famous do you read with envy and say, if only? Those are nothing in comparison. They all point to what world history is moving towards, and that's the wedding feast of the Lamb. Do you know, brothers and sisters, in Christ, you have the victory celebration that you've been invited to and you're going to attend? Revelation 1, uh, 19, after these things I heard as it were a loud voice of a great multitude of heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his blood servants on her. Brother, or bond servants on her. Do you understand? Unlike Ahasuerus who's done nothing, God is going to destroy everything we fear. Everything that poses a threat against us, sin, Satan, name it, that will be de- destroyed. And when that time comes, verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters, and as the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, saying, Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad of him and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Stop there. Brothers and sisters, that's what awaits us all. When you look at this chapter, don't look with envy. When you look at the things of this world, don't look with, with envy. They, they pale in comparison to what is yours and ours in Jesus Christ. What awaits us, every one of us, in Jesus Christ, this very moment. Secondly, in this chapter, we see the contrast between Ahasuerus' response to his rebellious bride and God's response to his. When his wife rebelled, what did the king do? We'll read in this passage that his anger burned. Verse 12. At the king's command delivered, the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. That anger would last for four years. It'd still be gone four years later. At the start of chapter 2. Still going. Incredible. You know what God's response is? God's response to us, well, let's look at it. What is God? What is God Almighty? I mean, you want to deal with, with an omnipotent being? You're talking about God, not this man, not cancer, not the things that, that make us fear. God. And when we rebel against God, we, his bride, rebel against him, what does he do? Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 4. After he was married, he went to home to his bedchamber to go to bed. His wife had locked the door. She came to him. The door's locked. He knocked on it, in essence. And, um, he, you know, basically, open up. I'm home. And she's like, I'm in bed. I don't want to get up. My feet are washed. They're clean. I don't want to get up. So he leaves. 
Well, then she, gets, she wakes up enough and comes to her senses. And so she opens the door and runs out to him. And he's not there. So she's searching for him. And she's by this time, no doubt, thinking, boy, she blew up. Maybe he'll divorce me. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe Vashti's going to happen here. I don't know. And he finds him in the, ga- the garden. And she doesn't say a word. And this is what he says to her. He says, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem. Now, you know, that's not much of a compliment. What's significant about this verse is it's a repeat of Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15 and following. It's the words he spoke to her on her wedding night. Let me ask Christian, what's the words God spoke to you on your wedding night when you were saved? What did he say to, to you? Please fill in the blank. What did he say to you when you were saved? In the womb or as a 20-something-year-old? Whatever. What did he tell you when you were saved? He said, forgiven. Beautiful. So we told you, right? We'd all say that. That's exactly what God said when we were saved. Forgiven. To tell us not, it's finished. Forgiven. What does God tell you when you rebel against him as a Christian? Song of Solomon says, the same words he told you when you were saved. Forgiven. Beautiful. And you look at this passage, and you see by contrast the kind of Lord that you and I got. It's incredible. And lastly, in this chapter, we are reminded of that which only can inspire obedience on the part of, of, of man. How is it that... Hazarerus and his advisors endeavor to bring about the obedience of their, of their kingdom, of their palace, of their wife. Two things. Humiliation, stripped her of her title, and law. You know what's really sad as Christians? So often in our walks with God, we act like we're married to Ahasuerus. When we sin, I should feel humiliated. And if I don't, I need to feel humiliated. So I'm going to do everything I can to make myself feel so low because I'm such a bad, horrible, you know, sinner beneath God's magnifying glass of of heat. That's what God does. He humiliates us. He wants us to be humiliated, right? And secondly, more law. All right? I failed there. What laws need to be enacted? What passage do I need to read that will stop me from doing that sin? Brothers and sisters, that's how man, that's how this monarch, this despot, handled the rebellion of his bride. You know how God handles the rebellion of, of his bride? 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loves us. You got to understand, this is the principle, brothers and sisters. I read this for many, many years thinking, we love because he first loved us. His love opened the door for me to love. Now I've got to obey his law and do these things to love. That is not what this passage says. That's a complete misunderstanding of this text. Hear the text again. You love because God loves you. The more you come to apprehend the goodness, the grace, the kindness, the glory, and the love of Christ for you, the more you are going to love. The more you're going to respond with God. Let me serve you. What a wonderful being you are. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, I urge you therefore, brethren, he's going to give them a command. I urge you therefore, brethren, By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living holy sacrifice. Don't do it because you got to. Don't do it because if you don't, you're going to be humiliated. Do it because of the grace and the kindness and love, the mercy of your king. 
Brothers and sisters, if the object of your quiet times with God on a daily basis, of your devotions as a family on a weekly basis, daily basis, if the objective is not to fall more and more in love with Christ, to see his beauty, to see his glory, then brothers and sisters, your goal, your aim is way too low. Let us stop being a people infatuated by, by fun facts and knowledge and let's be a people who, who more and more are cultivating our hearts, our children's hearts, our wives' hearts, our families' hearts to love, to behold, to gaze upon and to just relish the glory and the greatness of your God and the love he has for you. That's not what Vashti did. That's not what the women of, of his kingdom did. The woman of his kingdom heard the law and laughed. What a joke. Now, there's, such more, there's so much more here. How many people went to get his bride, right? He sent his bodyguard, in essence. Brothers and sisters, you're always surrounded by God's, by God's care. He's all, you're always protected by God. You're the most precious thing in his kingdom. You can be sure he's sending his bodyguard for, for you. So many more parallels, brothers and sisters. But let's take these. And let's leave this chapter with our gaze where it should be upon the, pro, the, the glory, the greatness of our God who is in charge of all things. And let us rejoice and let us exalt and let us praise. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible picture that you give us here, both of the things we fear in this world. And the glory and the greatness of the love and the grace and the compassion you have for us in this world. Jesus, you've told us, and do not fear the things of this world that can only touch our body but cannot touch our soul. But reverently love him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Lord, give us the grace. By this chapter, by this book, to grow in our love our understanding, our apprehension of the greatness of your providential care, but also, Lord, of your character and your greatness and your glory. And may it humble us and make us worship. May this theology result in doxology in our lives that we might be a people who praise you and exalt you and glorify you because of the greatness of your being and the love that you have for us in Christ. Lord, thank you that you'll never do anything to humiliate us because we are the apple of your eye. Give us the grace, O Lord, to trust, to live by faith and to allow our imaginations and our fears to stop um, uh, compromising our faith. May our faith be rested in what we've read here and what we see in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.